Hello and welcome back to another episode of Rebound with Resilience, a podcast dedicated to raise your resilience, mindset, and mental wellness. On this episode, to talk about life, spirituality, and yes, how to make money without losing your soul, I have a secondary school friend, a former army regular, and now a full-time trader. Welcome to the show, Leo. Thanks. I'm glad to be here, Kevin, with you. Um, the last time I knew you in school, you were slightly different and you reached out to me about three weeks ago yeah. uh, to speak on this channel. And since then, I've listened to some of your podcasts and I'm very impressed with how you uh, place a lot of importance on mental health, well-being and resilience. And these are topics that not a lot of people here dare to touch because they are quite mm. iffy. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Actually, yeah, because, um, you know, I knew you were doing a lot of things. I, I want to talk about how <laughs> my perception of Leo back in secondary school, but I reconnected with you and, and of course you sent me a DM on Instagram talking about my work um, and how you appreciated it. So I thought, hey, you know, I really appreciate that. And then we reconnected. Um, but, but I do want to share <laughs> a little bit about Leo back when he was in school. Uh, oh no. You know, because uh, he's a very, okay, I, I use this word in a good way. He's a very peculiar individual. Yeah. Back in school, very unconventional. So while everybody, I was from Victoria, Victoria, from Victoria School, while everybody was kind of studying into, you know, studies and everything, Leo was extremely fast in running. So he was one of the best cross-country runners in Singapore. He does a 2.4 in like seven plus minutes. Right? I, I pretty much, pretty much. So I know him as that. Uh, but he also did not give uh, too much of a shit about, about studies. Back then, he was just on his own. I uh, loved to explore stuff. Mm-hmm. And I remember exploring drains with you and, and trying to find oysters as well. Yes. Pulls from oysters. Remember the drains. Yeah. So it's interesting because I think back then I wasn't aware of the context yet. Uh, I guess I wasn't as mature. So I kind of, in a way, judged you based on my own kind of paradigm about life, right? I need uh-huh. to study how to be a good person. And if I don't, there's something wrong with me. So I knew you were adopted as well. I think I knew from Sam or some other people, but I didn't really obviously address it. I didn't tell you, ask you about it. But I thought that maybe that had an impact and I guess maybe we'll discuss about that. Uh, but I just knew you didn't care about studies and were just very <laughs> disconnected in school. Yeah, that's the way it seemed. And the way, and the way it seemed was that you were, you were dumb. That, that's what I thought. Like, yeah. I'm not as intelligent like, in a sense that you just came from DSA. I was very judgmental. Kind of back them subtly. But I still enjoy hanging out with you in the drains and it is love for exploration. So yeah, I want to talk about that definitely before. And then now, of course, looking at you and you're so successful, financially independent, you're a full-time trader. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, definitely we're going to talk a little bit about, about money today. La. It's it's a little bit, I can see I'm a little bit off because usually we don't talk about these things mm-hmm. on this podcast. But I, I do want to give outline of the context of the podcast before uh, we go into it. So we are going to talk about your personal life, like growing up, you know, as adopted child, how that kind of your struggles, your influences, your journey in being obsessed with being rich. I know there's a point in time where you became obsessed with being rich and that was an interesting period of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, signing on in the army, why you did that? Because a lot of people run away from that, but you gravitated towards that. And eventually, of course, specifically on financial resilience. Uh, in our society, right, not everything is, I mean, not everything, got to, okay, you know what they say, like, money is not everything, but in our society, almost everything has got to do with money. 
you know, whether or not you are a kid that your parents fight over money, whether you know you have a void, you want to make more money, or whether you just invest your life savings into like GME, everybody has some sort of perception, psychology, some sort of relationship with money. So I think it's very fascinating. And talking to you about this topic that day when I went to your house mm-hmm. was one of the most present spiritual conversations I had. So I thought inviting you on this podcast, definitely listeners will learn a lot. I know it's a lot of introduction, but I really want to set Leo, Leo up for this. Uh, and we are going to talk about the history of money, growing money, and ultimately investing money as well. You know, So that's going to be the outline today. Cool? Cool. Okay. So yeah, talk to me about growing up. What's your earliest memory? We will start with growing up and influencers, right? Before we talk about money, what were your earliest memories of your your childhood? And was there a point where you, you found out that you were adopted? What do you enjoy doing? Like, you know, like as a real kid, do you remember having the interest of exploration even from young? Okay. Well, um, I did find out I was adopted when I was about five, I'd say. Okay. Uh, I went to this kindergarten <clears throat> went to this kindergarten and uh, some of the kids asked me why I was brown. Mm. Okay, let's just say it as it was. Why are you black? And you know, your parents that kind of pick you up, they are of a lighter skin color. So okay. My adopted daddy's Australian and my mom's Eurasian Chinese mix. So she looks pretty Singaporean as well. Okay. So then I started to ask myself, why am I different? Is it something of my own doing? So I asked my parents and uh, they didn't hold back. They told me the truth. You, are adopted and at that age I didn't really understand what it I didn't I didn't really understand what it meant so Mm. I just took it as it was took it in my stride it never really bothered me that much when I was young it did come back to bite me when I was about 12 13 secondary one when I was going into Victoria it bothered me a little bit but when I was young not so much Mm. so my main influences were my parents uh, predominantly my dad because uh, him being an Australian and an outdoors sort of guy. Mm, no, I, now, yeah. no, that's where he Father sometime wasn't at the mall or watching a movie. Mm. It was uh, him bring me to the botanical gardens maybe. Sure. Or bring me to the beach or taking me fishing even though I couldn't catch anything. But he built up that curiosity in me. Okay. He built up that curiosity in me to explore uh, what's out there. Mm. And the curiosity and the my innate gravitation towards yep, the unknown yep. did end up surfacing later on in life with finance. Sure. So yes, I would say it's more about curiosity. We'll definitely go into that. Uh, you know, in this podcast, I guess people might say, oh, I want to go straight into the money. You can skip if you want to, but I, I kind of suggest you stay because the context is as important as the content. And in this podcast, we, we explore the context quite a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, so... Uh, yeah, so it didn't impact you, but talk about that before you went to VS. So you went through DSA. Yes, so I was riding. from St. Stephen's. I okay. did track and field. And, well, I did want to go into Victoria because I live really nearby. That's pretty much all, the only reason I want to go in. And I heard about this DSA, and so I direct school admission through yeah. my sport. Uh, my PSLE wasn't fantastic, but it could have scraped through. It was 246. Could have scraped through Damn, anyway. That, that's, <laughs> that, okay, yeah. that's not fantastic. I call not fantastic. It relative, but, but it that was really the good. cutoff. That was right, the right, cutoff. Okay. Uh, so I DSA just to be extra sure, and okay. I got in, and uh, that's how I started cross country in uh, VS, which has a very strong uh, history of cross country teams. Mm. So you mentioned that it kind of impacted you a little bit. Can I ask about that? You mentioned about only Sorry, when you were twelve years old. Yeah. 
Oh, okay. So because I know, I know you were sharing me the last time. But yeah, some some of them when they grow up, uh, it does affect them, especially if they're not from their birth parents or they kind of get separated from their birth parents. But that was not the case for you. Yeah, for me, I was very lucky because mm. uh, I didn't actually meet or remember my birth parents. So there's no, you know, painful Harry Potter story of se- <laughs> separation, or there's no tragic. You know, some of these kids they you know lose their parents in accident. Mm. Uh, their parents divorce, neither one wants custody. Uh, that, that there's a plethora of reasons why these kids lose their parents and they end up in the system, in an orphanage, uh, feeling unwanted, feeling like it's their fault. Right. I basically just woke up in someone else's arms, that's all. Okay. So I got the real easy end of the spectrum. Sure. So what was that? If it bothered you a little bit at 12 years old, what was, what was it that bothered you? Um, well, at 12, I, I did not, I wasn't able to contextualize how I was on the much luckier end of the spectrum than anyone else. Right. Uh, when you're 12, you know, something bad happens to you, you fall down, you scrape your knee. It's the end of the world. And that's what it felt like to me. Mm. And I often compared, and I, a lot of people still do, we often compare to people who have it better. So, you know, there'd be these, these parents at Victoria who at sec one would give their kids, you know, something like 50 bucks pocket money. And my dad has this really strict rule. I mean, we, we are from a middle income family. We are not, you know, struggling but he had this rule where he said, there's no way you can spend more than $2 at lunch in the canteen. And so I got $2 and okay. $2 could get me food and drink. Yeah. Fine. But I would always look at the guy with 50 bucks mm. and I'd say, is it because I'm adopted? And that's a really dumbass thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really dumbass thing to think. And yeah, when, yeah, when you okay. look back at it, when I look back at it, it's quite an embarrassing thought. But yeah. at that age, that was valid to me. And so these comparisons led me to feel that, hey, I'm adopted, you know, my life sucks, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And, and that did bother me. Same. Okay. But I, I guess there had some link or maybe they're even independent things, right? But I know in SEC 1, we were in the same class. We, yes. SEC 1 and SEC 2, mm-hmm. uh, my earliest memories of VS, I think, was during a camp. I think it was we all had to go through like adventure camp, SEC 1. I did not want to yeah. be there because I had this like superiority complex, very... Like I said, I was very judgmental when I was young. I wanted to go to RI. I did not get in because of some TSA trials. I sprained my ankle. So I ended up inverted commas in VS. Mm-hmm. And I think I was actor like a pre-Madonna back then. Um, but I, I, I kind of remember you because we had this race. We had this race where we had to run. And I remember that you also ran. Did you run? And I remember you came in first or something. Right? I, I don't you, you remember. You probably don't remember. Yeah, but <laughs> basically I knew that you were, you were really fast. And the context also is that uh, in our class, we were good at English. Like we were so-called in a good dramatic yeah. English yeah. class. So generally our class was very dramatic. Um, but I, I remember, you know, you were not too interested in studies. Where, where did that actually happen? When did that start to happen? When was I not interested yeah. in studies? The question should be, when was I interested Just in studies? I, I kind of never was. Okay. Um, in primary school, if we could rewind a bit, I, I never had any any desire to do get better grades than I was getting. Yeah. I never looked at my report card because my parents never did. They sure. brought me up to believe that, you know, the report card is a, you know, is a general guideline mm. to show you that your son is not screwing his life up. But you, we should not judge the kid based on what he comes back with. So whatever I came back with, my parents just gave me a thumbs up. And, you know, in primary school, it's easy. You get A's, you get A stars. PSLE, I got A, A, A star, A. Mm. But that was easy. That was when you didn't have to actually apply any effort Okay. Um, I think the grades of primary school students are heavily dependent on their environment when they go home. 
It okay. has nothing to do with their aptitude or their intelligence. Mm. So okay. I had a great environment when I went home, and so I came back with great grades. Mm. But in secondary school, things got a bit tougher. This this Singapore system is is pretty tough when you when you compare it to other uh, syllabus overseas. Sure. Um, so it did get more difficult and a lot more effort, a mm. lot more conscious, concerted effort was required. And I did not see the payoff. Mm. And I did a basic, I didn't know it was called this back then, but I did a cost benefit analysis. And I said, hey, the cost is I can't muck around and, you know, go find frogs or go explore drains. And the benefit is I come home with a good report card that my parents are not going to look at anyway. Mm. And so I said, hey, it's not worth it. Right. It makes sense. Now it makes sense because it's not parents are not typical parents that focus so much on grades. They forced you to study. Yeah. It was just like you can explore, you know what? But did they ever have a talk with you? I say, Leo, you know what? Your parents are talking to me. I believe your parents and parents. I believe our teachers, karate, I remember as a form teacher. I believe they did have conversations with it your parents. Uh, so I, I had a, a lot of teachers who were worried, like yeah. this kid, this kid is, okay, I was not bottom of the class, but yeah. I was. But you were just disinterested. You were disengaged, completely disengaged from school, I remember. I was that guy, if I could choose where I could sit, I would just be in the back corner. Uh, you know, I wasn't rude, legs weren't up, but I just wasn't there. I, yeah. I was just waiting for the class to end. I was waiting mm. to leave and do what I wanted to do, which was explore. And so these teachers, they called up my parents and said, you know, your, your kid has potential, but he's being troublesome. Mm. And my parents did talk to me about it and said, at least pretend to enjoy it. At least this is all part of your compulsory education. You finish O-levels, you can do whatever you want with your life. You want to go straight into working after O-levels, we won't stop you. Wow. That's yeah. that's the kind of parents they were. But until O-levels is over, can you at least pretend to be interested? And, and so I, I, did. I did. Okay. And how, how do you deal with it then? Uh, how did you get yourself back in the game, so to speak, huh? Because I, I mean, I stopped seeing you after sector. We weren't that close. But I do remember us, I said, uh, exploring drains for some context. VS is a drain below. I think it's still there. Yeah, there's a rainwater canal. And uh, I used to go and explore. It's under this place called Linear Park. If any of you are from Victoria, you can. there's a ladder that goes down. Okay. And it's in full view, right? I mean, people yeah, can It was see. in full view of the of the bus stop. There's a bus stop. It took people east to Tampines and and. People would always be there waiting for their bus to go home. And then we were down there. And yeah, there was Blocking me. oysters, trying to find poles. I did not get a pole though. I was very yeah. upset that day. I still have some at home. There's <laughs> uh, memories. You pawn it for some money, but never mind. That's fine. Maybe one day we'll, I mean soon, maybe we'll explore again. Mm-hmm. Um, So yeah, you got, your, you got your head back into the game mm-hmm. and uh, you kind of scraped past. You did okay in your O-levels? I scraped through, but before we get to the O-levels part, yeah, we need to, I just need to yeah, say, some there was a price I paid and that yeah. was that there was one year I had to stay back. Okay. And when that happened, you know, most people would either, you know, you'd feel like it's the end of the world or yeah. you'd, you'd suddenly change okay. and uh, study and commit to the system. But that made me commit even less to the system. Um, okay. It made me realize that, yes, you do need to, to pass. You do need to hit a certain criteria to go to all levels because, you know, these schools want to raise the average. They don't want you to go and take yeah. the test and screw it up. So I just complied. I studied harder. I did all right. I, I didn't do great, but I did all right. Uh, enough to go to JC. Um, but I didn't want to. The, the After staying back for one year, I no longer wanted to commit to, to this system where I had to you know, pretend to enjoy what I'm doing ever again. Mm. So I got an offer to study overseas um, for year 11 and 12, which is you know, when you're 16, 17, 18-ish. Mm. And uh, I went... 
over to uh, Brisbane, Australia, to this place called Naji College, uh, where the subjects were different. So you could pick what you wanted to do. So I picked bio, I picked philosophy. There was no limit on, on what you wanted to do. You want to study French, you can take French. Yep. And you can take optional subjects that are not part of your L1, R5 equivalent. Mm. You know, and uh, I thought that system was was great. Okay. Suited your, your personality a little yeah, bit. Yeah, right down my alley. Let's go back a little bit because not everybody has the luxury of maybe going overseas, right? Let's say a kid listening to this, yeah, they feel exactly like you. A lot of them feel exactly like you. Disinterested with school. Not sure why they're doing it. I can't find a link to their dreams and goals. No passions in life. At least you had a passion, right? Exploration. They don't have many passions. What advice will you give them to survive in this system at that age? That is a very interesting question. Um, I don't think anyone doesn't have a passion. They have it. They just don't realize they have it yet. Okay. So imagine this. Uh, your parents, your teachers, your peers are all forcing you to study. You're cramped up in this little room with just books. Your handphone's been confiscated. Your computer's unplugged. Where would you rather be? And what would you rather be doing? There is definitely an answer. Mm. And the first thing that pops into your mind, that is your passion. Your passion could be running. Mm. Your passion could be your CCA. You could be looking forward to your CCA. That could be your escape from school. That was mine. At that age. Right? That was mine yeah. at that age. Yeah. Um, but passions can often uh, become escapes. Mm. So just be careful to not head down the wrong road and use the wrong escapes to escape your problems. Mm. There are a lot of happy, or sorry, not happy, healthy, healthy methods of escape. And a lot of them are sports, sports related. Mm. Mm. Right. So the main, so the main point is don't run away from your problems. Yes. So don't, as long as you don't let computer games or whatever become an escape, you just watch videos, play computer games, you don't address the problems. But how do you suggest they address the problems, especially when they keep really cannot find meaning in study? Mm-hmm. You have to, how did you do it back then? Like you had to at least scrape through. Well, if I could go back to, mm. you know, if I could suddenly become 16 again yeah. and be given a second chance, I think I would tell my younger self, uh, don't escape, but learn how to cope and know the difference. And learning how to cope can mean taking breaks, uh, can mean setting realistic targets, can mean uh, reassessing what subjects you're actually taking. Uh, versus escape, which is in a way what I was kind of doing. I would just wait for school to end and run away. And link it to their passions as well. Like if they do yeah. well, eventually it's just a means to an end and they can eventually go and pursue things that they enjoy, like which we're going to get into because Lo is now really successful financially. Um, no, not really. <laughs> um, he's being his understatement. He's being humble. But but yeah, of course, I'd want to kind of take it as just a one-off kind of story we will talk about the principles that led him there but before you kind of get there if you're a student try and link it to your passion uh, link your studies to actually eventually pursuing whatever you want to do Uh, and like Leo said just focus on tackling the problem in front of you Um, the last thing you need to do is escape from it uh. don't escape from it and I think you, you also shared with me that if you could go back in time you would have taken it a little bit more seriously Yes, I, I would have committed more, not because I would have suddenly, you know, believed in the system, mm. thought that grades are important. I would have committed more because sometimes in life, and this is going to happen to you a lot of times, you are going to be placed into a system that you do not believe in. Mm. And when you're young, you might feel the right thing to do is to rebel outright. But that never is the case because if you want to change something eventually, you need to understand it entirely. And the best way to understand something is to immerse yourself in that system 
even if it's not something you agree with. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, thanks for sharing that, Leo. Uh, we, we have to move on to other things because today's really is about financial resilience. It's the focus of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, if you need help on this, just 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 DM us. DM me and you know, talk to you about it. So you went overseas, right? You, you mentioned that you did a lot of different subjects. You came back, you did your NS. Uh, immediately when you went, you said, I love this, I want to sign on. Talk yep. to me about it because it's unconventional. Okay, so uh, like we were saying, when I was a kid, I liked to explore, yeah. go into forests, climb into drains. So, of course, I was like a kid with candy when yeah. I was being told that, hey, I have to do this for two years and nothing else. So yeah. as a recruit, you know, being in the mud, covered in camo, getting shouted at, uh, while everyone else was having a little bit of a cry, I was I was ecstatic. So uh, as a recruit, I immediately decided I wanted to commit more than two years. I wanted to commit a total of six, which was inclusive of my two compulsory years. And I chose intentionally to be a war spec, which is like a, a sergeant because it's more hands-on, it's more down and dirty. There's more uh, interpersonal relationships mm-hmm. with okay, your okay. guys. Okay. And dude, money money was never a part of the equation, but the SAF does pay quite stable and there's just a lot of job security. And I won't go into the benefits, but basically I was offered a chance to do this for a living. And mm-hmm. I said, yes. Okay. And you said also that you gravitated, you wanted to challenge yourself because it was so-called inverted commas negative environment and you wanted to experience that. Can you share a bit about that? Okay. Um, So in national service, I believe NS is the great equalizer because our school system, I mean, I will not talk negatively about it, but our school system is built Mm, around streaming kids. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we stream our kids from as early as, I think in our time we had that EM1, 2, 3 stuff in P4. We don't have that anymore. Uh, then you have your PSLE. You get split to different streams of secondary school education, which yeah. do you whether you like it or not. And then from then on, you get streamed again into tertiary education. Like you can be IT, you can get a diploma, you can get a A-level cert. Yeah. And then you all come back for NS. And so as a recruit, you are finally able to see, hey, I, if I've been streamed through, you know, something like the ex- Express Stream my whole life, and suddenly now I have to interact with other people who may not have that kind of uh, background it can be intimidating, it can be difficult. And then f- from the other person's perspective, they're like, hey, this person has so-called, quote unquote, higher qualifications than I do. What makes him better than me? And they might get defensive. Mm. So I saw a lot of these uh, things going on in my bunk as a recruit. And for me, it was quite intimidating because I did not know how to handle these situations. I didn't know how to talk to them. If two people were arguing, I didn't know how to mediate. Yeah, And I realized that I like being out of my comfort zone in that sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that coupled with being able to get you know down and dirty in the jungle and get paid for it, these sure. two things together <laughs> makes sense, right? Makes definite sense. yes. And and I guess when a lot when we reconnected, I spoke to you in your home. Then it made sense to me why you are able to connect and eventually do business really well because that was also like a training ground for you. Both your studies overseas and exactly what you said. I mean, we can't go into their personal problems because it's private, but a lot of them are very extreme extreme especially being a sheltered environment like you said everyone is like you know sheltered yes you don't really get to see this kind of stuff and when you do be exposed to it it generally changes your paradigm about life and also builds up your capacity to connect and empathize yes so we were talking about how empathy is really underrated and one thing i felt from you when i was speaking to you was empathy like, that day mm-hmm. yeah so i'm glad that that, that shaped you in, in that way uh while you were in NS, this is the interesting part. I finally get into the money part. You're dying for it. <laughs> you know, 
but yeah, so you were there. You start you started to value money more. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that was because you went to the clubs and you saw people that had more. Mm-hmm. So talk about that. You're doing that while you were still in NS. I mean still a regular. Okay, so before I go any further, yeah. I need to make it absolutely clear yeah, yeah, yeah. that regulars are not supposed to do what is called, I think the term is mm-hmm. called moonlighting. So yeah. you can't make money outside, right? Because they're afraid that it will distract you from your primary job. Mm. And so, you know, a lot of people do it. Mm. And I'm not telling anyone to do it. I'm not going to admit that, you know, we need a little bit of money on the side. And yeah. uh, if you're working on the weekend, if you're committing hours to doing something, I think that's wrong because SF could call you back and then you say, hey, I've got a job. Yeah. But if you are selling things, for example, on Carousel, you are arbitraging between markets. You buy something yeah. on Amazon and you resell on Carousel. You buy something on Carousel, you resell on eBay. I think that kind of small micro trading, business yeah. of trading physical <laughs> goods, I don't think that counts. So yeah, yeah. then I'll, I'll so carry on. Huh? I've <laughs> indemnified myself. Okay. Um, so how did this start? This started when, so as a kid, I had no love for going to clubs. I, I didn't, the hell is alcohol? Like, why do people yeah. do this? But going into NS, if any of you good boys yeah. uh, have never drunk before, you will face a lot of situations and scenarios where you are told to go with your bros and drink. Mm. So I went and I realized there was incredible potential here to make money, both in uh, the buying and reselling of alcohol, in the delivery of alcohol, in the promotion of clubs that had difficulties filling up seats. And so I won't go into detail how deep I went into that, but uh, let's just say that I started to meet all kinds of different people from all walks of life, uh, all kinds of different SCS and all of them, you know, they were there to impress others. Most, most people at that age, you know, 19, 20, 21, Mm. they weren't there to get drunk. They were there to, to lead a double life, you know, Mm. build this persona that, Hey, I'm successful. Albeit only for like four hours, and then gonna eat grass for the rest of the week. So, I met a lot of these people, but some that stood out to me, the ones that changed me, for better or worse, were these kids who had everything. Mm. And I'm talking, you know, there's these. Of course, there's a. I don't want to bring up the country name. Yeah. China, China ones. Okay, that have absolutely top the bottom. You know, Louboutins, Moschino tops. Right. Uh, but they, you know, they've got these soft hands, and they look like they haven't done a day of work in their life. So these kids come in and they get, mm. they come in a group of eight and they buy 50 bottles of Dom Perignon champagne and spend oh. like 25 grand. Yeah, you can't even finish this stuff. What are you doing? But deep down, deep down there is a, I did experience uh, negative feelings, yeah. dark feelings, you know, jealousy, mm. comparison. Why do I not have that? Why do I not deserve that? What has he done to get this? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty clear. It's not his money. It's probably <laughs> daddy's money, right? But, yeah. but those... Feelings of comparison crept in. And I'm not sure if any of your listeners have felt this. I'm oh, for pretty sure, sure that yeah, you have yeah. felt this. It might even have been report cards like we were talking about yeah, earlier. Yeah. You, you just start to compare and you start to ask, why does he deserve this and why do I not? Mm. And so at that age, I thought the right thing to do instead of being jealous was to work harder. I wanted to be like him. I aspired to have that. And I thought the harder I work, the more I'll get mm. and then I'll deserve it. Okay. And that will, you know, fill this hole in my heart. Okay. Got it. So it's a void that it's a void. I had to feel back then. Cause it, it drives it really deep because I, I mean, I've never stepped into a club before. I don't know if I ever will. 
people people that <laughs> people that have gone mm. told me you know you know waste the time but I, I i want to to go into that because you you mentioned about more of like the the other side of things where there's a lot of ego, ego battles it's more of like asserting something like mm-hmm. compensating for something yeah but was there any good or rather because i don't want to label things as either bad or good you know what i mean so was there any yeah was there any like value <laughs> in the club there's definitely value in the club uh pre-covid now yeah. now when we're filming this we're in covid but pre-covid i'd still go into the club like maybe once every two weeks mm. just let loose with a few friends have a dance i mean i just pay entry have a good time leave so i think as with anything in life nothing is toxic nothing is a hundred percent toxic mm. nothing is a hundred percent healthy right there's it always is, a spectrum yeah, it's always a spectrum and it's very dependent on what kind of mindset you take going into it mm. what kind of mindset you take going into it applies for anything right you could have great grades but you study for the wrong reasons and it's bad you know yeah. that kind of thing so are there any positives to clubbing uh i would say well back then i was won't go into detail but i was somewhat working so mm. i got very good at you know interpersonal skills mm. uh being able to quickly identify what a person wants and how to deliver it to them with a personal touch so mm. that they remember me mm. instead of remember the establishment so right. then i become indispensable to the establishment which i will not name <laughs> yeah 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 you learn i think these things are really important because best mind space you can occupy is i mean someone told me before like the greatest real estate you can own is in the corner of someone's mind right mm-hmm. and if you own that space then they always come to you they always remember you any deals or whatever yeah um, like i said i mean i don't want to go into so much details but uh when you started to trade so thanks for sharing that i think that's a good perspective uh when you started to trade alcohol um, could you give at some idea of how that worked and the emotions you felt when you started to make money. Okay. So other than working nights, I realized I wanted to monetize my free time. Mm. Uh, and as a regular, I started to realize, you know, as I rose through the ranks, I started to realize I have an increasing amount of free time. Mm. And you have a choice. You know, either you're going to hop on your phone and play Mobile Legends or get on Netflix, or you can go out there and do something. So I was still in this somewhat disillusioned phase where I thought the most productive thing I can do with time mm. is make money. Okay. Which is not true guys. <laughs> But at that point that was true to me. So I had a passion for whiskey. Mm. I liked whiskey. And I think if anyone's thinking of starting a business, don't go for what makes you the most money. Do what you are passionate about. Mm. You'll never feel like you're working. So I was already collecting whiskey, you know, limited edition, simple stuff, cheap stuff. But I started to realize in 2015, Right there was this explosive boom in in the Japanese whiskey industry. You know these bottles started flipping, mm. you know, twenty times, fifteen times their recommended retail price, mm. and that's when we saw a lot of Singaporeans, you know, this place having such a high GDP, yeah, uh, starting to look at whiskey as an investment vehicle, and so that's when I said, hey, there's opportunity here to arbitrage mm. between marketplaces where the sellers don't know the full value of the item. Mm. To a network of seasoned whiskey investors mm. who are willing to pay, pay yeah. even with a premium over the market rate. Mm. So the first place I hopped onto, and and this platform is still full of under undervalued stuff, was mm. Carousel. Mm. So uh, an example was 1970s Johnny Walker Black Labels have Port Ellen in them. 
which is a mothball distillery. You know, their, their bottles go for you know four thousand, six, five thousand dollars a piece. But people don't realize that nineteen seventies Johnny Walkers have Port Ellen liquid in them, and so when they inherit these bottles from their grandparents, for example, they yeah. just put it up for the sale of a normal Johnny Walker, which is you know fifty, sixty bucks thereabouts. And so you can spot them. You can okay. Yeah. So the label's different, and if it's something you're passionate about, of course you'll know the label's different. Mm. So I spot these things I, as a you know, 19, 20 year old with not much money other than my SAF money. I put down 60 bucks, I take the bottle, bring it to these whiskey collectors, put it on the WhatsApp group for sale, 220, 250, sold in five minutes. So. Interesting. Uh, but was there anyone else that, that figured or was it very niche? Like right now, if you do it, is it still a niche thing? But only if you're into, into whiskey, can you then you'll understand how to pick it out. Yeah, you can still go into it, but I don't it's recommend you. Follow anyone's footsteps. You, yeah. you might be passionate about Pokemon cards. Yeah. You know, there's a huge market for Pokemon right. cards. Uh, Americans are now trading baseball cards for like fifty thousand dollars a piece. I don't understand. Yeah. But where there's a willing buyer and a willing seller, business can be made. So if your viewers or your listeners uh, ever feel lost and they want to start, you know, a small, uh, just entrepreneurship, manageable yeah. side stream of money, uh, tell them to start looking at what they already know. Don't dive into the hottest market. Just like I tell people, don't dive into GME, mm. right? And, and look what happened. Don't mm. dive into something that's already taken off. Try find something you love that's niche. And you may not have a huge pool of potential buyers, but having a small and committed pool to me is better. Okay. Yeah. The reason I asked the question was that in my mind, like if that's a good opportunity, everybody be on it, right? But I guess because it was niche, that's why you managed to, and you had a passion for that. That's why it gave an advantage and you also had access to buyers because of your work and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not, I, I, you can not tell me this if you want to, if you don't want to, but just to give an idea. Like what was the biggest trade you made? The biggest physical whiskey trade. Yeah. In terms of profit. Just give the audience an idea. Um, perhaps you want to rephrase the question to what is the most expensive single bottle you've sold? Because if we went into Okay. The most expensive trade, I'll just tell you, it's a very boring lorry full of Macallan 12s. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's so not just boring. volume. It's just volume, right? Okay. So eventually I did start selling by volume. Oh, right. You had so, a warehouse yeah. as well. But how much, I mean, okay, let's talk about that first. So that lorry, what was what was that trade amount? Like, um, can you say? <laughs> again, I won't go into detail, but I sold a lorry full of Martel and Macallan 12 to a Siamdu for cash. Okay. Yeah. And that was then, weird. That was a weird one. But uh, yeah, they only paid in cash. Okay, but but uh, I guess you won't go into details. Y'all can figure out how much that is. Yeah. It's quite a lot. So, um, but the single biggest one? Single biggest one was, well, it's not huge compared to some other, you know, whiskey fanatics out there, but my favorite one was this uh, beautiful Yamazaki 25 limited edition from Narita Airport that I managed to get for 7,006. And then I pushed off for 9,008. So my percentage profit wasn't great, but for one transaction, it floated well with me. Mm. If you make 30% on a single transaction, that's okay. okay. I shouldn't have sold it, should have held it, because it's worth more now. Kicking myself. <laughs> because with that amount of money, you can't, mm. you can't even find a willing seller anymore. Sure. Okay, so anyway, <clears throat> so you chased that right for a period of time. How did that affect you emotionally? If you said that it was always about the chase. Mm-hmm. How did that affect you physically, emotionally? Because you were, I mean, you were regular. You had to go out and do hard labor, talk to men, you know, command. 
and then on the weekends you would like head to the clubs and do this stuff, right? Did that take a toll on you? No, surprisingly not. I because <laughs> I loved everything I did. Right. I loved my job in the army. Okay. Didn't feel like work. I loved my job on the weekends. Didn't feel like work. Mm. It never felt like work. And that's the scary part. When you are traveling down the wrong road and you are convinced that it is right. Mm. Um, and I only realized later on that it was taking a toll on me. But at that point, I didn't feel like it was taking a toll on me. I felt great. Uh, every time I saw a bank account balance go up, that you know sort of uh, boosted my esteem almost mm. in a very unhealthy, strange way. Now that I look back at it. But back then, it was all good. Okay. Um, but what made you eventually let go? Because when we when we talked about it, you said that uh, there had to be some, some a limit. And when you talk about how when people chase money, I mean, we went in a bit about society, right? When you're just after the chase of money, what it does to you. Mm-hmm. Speak a little bit about that. Maybe not from personal experience, but also maybe from the, the personal experience. So where this all changed, I don't know if I shared this with you last mm-hmm. time, but where this all changed was when I started to memorize how to play blackjack. So as... Mm-hmm. I don't know if your 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 kids are old enough to yeah, understand, sure but, yeah, but the 21 casino rules uh, seems like a game, a randomized game. It seems like it's based on emotion mm. by feeling, should I take, should I not take? But there's a finite number of outcomes that can happen with blackjack. So long story short, I realized, I realized MBS is one of the best rules in the world for 21, for blackjack. They use about six decks and an electronic shuffler. Don't know if you're going to delete this later. But I realized that there's a finite number of outcomes and you can memorize, you know, basic strategy mm. pretty much on the internet and mm. just practice every night for you know, three months. So all this changed, long story short, when I started going to MBS to play blackjack semi-professionally at night. And so the people I sat next to, uh, they were all really different from those people I met at the clubs that I mentioned earlier they were a league above. Mm. They were, you know, there's people losing or making 400, 500K in an hour at some of these tables, Mm. uh, especially Baccarat, uh, sometimes 21. And so I only played 21 because the only statistically, you know, positive game for the player. And so I looked at these people with huge, insane amounts of money that I, for some reason, aspired to have, but they looked miserable. Mm. they had no control over how they spent their money. And this we'll talk about this later when it comes to finances. They had no control over how much they lost, how much they made, or when to walk away. And that's when I started to realize that uh, maybe there is no end to this. Like, when I get to their level, will there be someone else that I'm jealous of? Mm. Uh, will I have control over how much I lose? Because I was very strict. If you lose, you know, if you're down 10%, walk out. If you're up 25%, walk out. If you lose, you know, four games in a row, swap table, take a break, have a smoke, that sort of thing. But these people did not have any control. And it made me wonder, how did they get that money in the first place? Mm. Have you ever spoken to them? No, it was very professional in the room. I did. I did. Okay. Contact with someone. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Let's let's not go there because there's another podcast altogether. Uh, Maybe we invite Leo back for another round in the future. Talk about more mindset specific stuff. But okay, so you realize that there's no end to the chase. Uh, of course, yeah. I experienced this as well on a much lower scale in terms mm-hmm. of money-wise. But yeah, I realized after um, when you hit a certain target that you're striving towards for so long mm-hmm. and you exceed that. And when it comes, you realize that it, it just, 
doesn't feel the same way you think it's going to be. And the one that gives you the most value, at least for me, it's still when a kid says thank you to me. It's still those things that we talked about. Um, so that's where I kind of realized. But I do know that like, we do need to make money as a platform through which we add value to people, which we will go into. Uh, but yeah, now let's talk about financial resilience. Okay, this podcast is about resilience. Okay. Um, and then uh, we, you know, we talked a little bit about self-control. So yeah, we're going to talk about these things in the context of money. Uh, three things we're going to talk about. Number one, some principles and foundation. Uh, because before you start making money, I think you need to know roughly what money is. Uh, why do you want to make money? Uh, Leo explains that really well. We're going to talk about that. Then we're going to talk about some ways you can make money on the side while you're working or whatever, while you're, you're studying, you want to get into business or start growing your finances. And the last thing we're going to talk about is investing and a bit of trading uh, because Leo does trading full-time. Mm-hmm. So, and how do you defer that from, say, gambling? So yeah, let's start with, with money. Uh, what is money? Exactly, because it's so fascinating that money means different things to different people. But if I would explain, ask you to explain what money is, right? What would be the answer? The shortest answer is that it's a social construct. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you want to expand on, on what money is, we could go on forever, but I'll try and break it down simply as to why it's a social construct. So there's physical money, there's hard money. So, you know, in the times of random guy from long ago, in the times of, in Jesus' time, right? They mm-hmm. had physical money. You yeah. know, money was in silver coins or gold coins. And these were physical. It's important to note that these were finite items. There's only a finite amount of gold in the earth. There's a finite amount of silver. So when problems started to arise from divisibility, right? We, we, the value of gold started to go up, right? They said, hey, why don't we start using other metals like copper or brass? You use cheaper stuff, which when you think about it, actually have little to no value at all. So nowadays you have, you have coins out there in the world that have a lower you know, face value than the actual metal it's printed on. Mm. So that's, that's quite interesting. So anyway, we fast forward uh, quite a lot. Recently, what we've been using or the money you have in your wallet, that's called fiat currency. Fiat in Latin means let it be. So fiat currency, paper money, like a, a Singapore $10 bill, is strangely not tethered to any physical money. That means there is no contract between you and your government. This $10 mm. cannot be used to redeem $10 worth of gold. Mm. You can buy $10 worth of gold from a jewelry shop, but you cannot bring it to your government and say, hey, I want to swap this back for the gold in your Federal Reserve. Okay. Um, so this is the weakness of fiat money. Your government has the right to print more if it deems it necessary, which means technically it's an it's infinite, infinite asset. Yeah. It's an infinite asset. It, it is there can be an infinite amount of money, okay. right? And so every time there is a problem, for example, recently with this uh, coronavirus problem, uh, you can have central banks like the Fed doing what they think is deemed necessary, which is cash injections, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you increase the amount of money in supply, you are invariably decreasing the, the value, value yeah. of each dollar, which most of you understand is inflation. inflation. Mm-hmm. Inflation's a bit more complicated than that. So if we go back a little bit to, uh, for example, 1933, there was a time in the US when uh, in 1933, Franklin Roosevelt made it illegal for Americans to own gold. So they confiscated all the gold that people had. There's wedding rings, you know, privately owned coins, bullion bars. They confiscated everything at a fixed rate of 20 US dollars per ounce. And an ounce is about 31.1 grams. So 
for those of you metric boys out there. Pretty sure they lost you, but it's okay. <laughs> so they confiscated all of yeah, this yeah. gold okay. for twenty dollars an ounce, just an ounce, whatever an ounce is. Okay, and a few years later, they resold it back to the public at thirty-five dollars an ounce, and they were doing this to, long story short, pay off debt, hmm. right? Pay off international debt, and so. Things happened after 1933, World War II, and the Cold War, etc. International debt grew again. And at this point, you know, there were paper dollars in the US, but these paper dollars were called the gold standard. So they were attached to the value of gold. You could walk up to your government and say, I want to swap this for, for gold. And that was the mm. reason they had gold in the Federal Reserve. In 1971, the US was once again, you know, swimming in debt uh, after all these various things had happened. And the then president, you know, President Richard Nixon, he said, hey, why don't we detach from the gold standard entirely and just print money? I mean, what's stopping us from printing money if we don't have to match, you know, the gold yeah. in our reserve with the money that we've printed and have in circulation? So they detached. And many countries followed as well. Uh, in 1973, they completely detached and they started to print money to pay off international debt. And this gave birth to what we call, as I mentioned, okay. Fiat money. Okay, that's a that's a summary. But I guess is I mean, if you want to Google it, you can go and yeah, those of you that are more curious. But guess people, what it means for people is that money is right now, it's infinite. You saying, or rather, it's the inflation. The money they can just print money, and so the value of it will go down. And if they put it in the bank, they're losing they're losing value. The money in your wallet has no actual value other than the trust that it will continue to be accepted widely. Okay. It is an assumption that it will continue to be accepted widely. Sure. So I'll take that, take that and understand it later. But of course, we're moving to digital as well now, and that's a completely different thing. We won't go into that. Digital and the value of that, whatever Elon Musk is quite big into. into that. Uh, but going back also, I think last time people used to barter trade, right? They used to trade items. That was how they did business. But along the way, they realized they want a standardized form, and then eventually they moved to what we are doing now. So understanding this context, right? People come to you and say, because people want to know like, what it means for them, right? So if they come to you and say, they'll teach me how to make money, I'm sure that people that come to you and say that because they envy you. Like you said, it's a cycle, right? And people do envy you because at your age, you're making, I mean, I, I don't want to say that, yeah, you can figure it out, right? But what do you say to them when they tell you, you want to, they want to make money? Well, I w the first thing I'd say is, is that they need to understand and break down what it is first. And right. to put it into one sentence, money is simply a store of time. So the, the first thing, the, the only thing that you can do to earn money if you have nothing is to give your time. And your time is the most precious finite resource that you have because when you die, you die, mm. right? So at the first stage of a person's life and they work for money, they, for example, they get $10 an hour. That $10 is a store of one hour of their time. And so when people come to me and they say, hey, how do I make money? I say, the first thing you got to do if you, I mean, assuming you don't inherit anything or you don't find a bag of money, mm. the first thing you need to do is find something that you're good at mm. and sell your time. Mm. And ideally, it should be something that builds you up, uh, that is progressive. I'm not saying that being a cashier is, is a bad thing. I'm just saying that you need to recognize that there are no professional cashiers, no top global cashiers. <laughs> it's just something you do to make a bit of money, learn a few skills, and then you move on. So when people ask me, how do I make money? I ask them to ask themselves, what are you doing right now that involves selling your time? Okay. Sell your time first. 
Sure. And of course, you eventually increase that, uh, that how much inverted commas that time is worth, the value is worth, you can... I mean, what I do tell people is slowly increase your market rate per hour. But of course, that eventually transitions into creating systems for passive or asset-based income, which we will we will get into. Uh, but what are some ways, I'm speaking of that, right? What are some ways that people can make money without capital? Any tips for people with regard to this, aside from, say, you know, finding out what you're passionate about? Without capital, like zero. Yeah. You'd have to sell time. Okay. That is the only thing you can do other than finding natural resources like a, you start being a, you know, Warcraft worker and you start, you know, digging soil and trying to sell wood. Or, I don't know. There's, there's no other way to make money mm. other than selling time. And there is nothing wrong with selling time. Mm. So you might hear a lot of people on YouTube, you know, demonize the idea of selling time. Why work a nine to five when you can just trade cryptocurrency with me? Uh, you know, stuff like that. It, don't demonize hard work. Okay. That's so yeah, okay, that's that, that's basically okay. Yeah. So yeah, I think this is quite straightforward, right? Find something, whether is it trading, whether is it for me that was hosting random stuff like kids' birthday parties or tennis coaching, because at that time I was passionate about tennis. So a lot of my money that my parents invested into me learning tennis, I started to do a bit of coaching, eventually transitioning into training with a higher market rate. So if you you're good at studies, you might want to teach some to institution on the side. Mm-hmm. But the whole idea is that you want to increase your market rate. And like you said, make sure your time in exchange for money is greater like the rate because time is a finite resource. Yes. You can be doing a lot with that. Um, I think one thing that I like to pick up also is the fact that you had somewhat of a personal education through your experiences, whether it's overseas, whether it's in the clubs. You picked up interpersonal skills, you picked up character skills, mm-hmm. uh, skills that you cannot learn in the classroom that help you to actually increase so-called your market rate or the amount of money you made. I think for people listening to this, right? Yes, studies are important, but you have to find some time to invest in your own development, right? Uh, whether is it interpersonal, interpersonal strengths, whether it intrapersonal, which is like your self-control, your resilience, or intellectual, which is you know, your curiosity for learning, and all these things, uh, Yeah, so definitely do that. Uh, let's let's go and talk about trade investing. I, I am going to give a bit more time for this this podcast, I really prepared that we're going to probably lengthen the conversation. That's why I scheduled someone uh, a bit later. Okay. So we're going to talk about investing and trading now. So let's say now people have made money, right? They made money, they want to invest. And a lot of special millionaires nowadays, they're more like interested in owning their, kind of doing their own investments rather than outsourcing it. Yes. So what do they have to keep in mind when they start uh, investing? Okay. Well, once you've done the hard work, you've put in the time, you've got a nest egg, we'll call it nest egg, once you've got your nest egg, before you go and invest it, before you go and throw your money onto the market, um, a lot of people don't first learn how to manage money. So they go straight into, how do I make this money become more money? Um, they, they, they need to learn how to manage it first. Mm-hmm. So management means identifying what kind of lifestyle you currently live, what kind of lifestyle you want to live, and... You know, the perfect scenario is the kind of lifestyle you want to live is a lifestyle you're already living. So as your gains go up, you know, your lifestyle remains constant. You don't upgrade your lifestyle to match your, you know, your income. Sure. And this is the mistake a a lot of, you know, investors, traders, uh, even normal nine to five workers make. Because you got nine to five workers making 20 grand a month. I have friends making 20 grand 
a month on just doing a desk job in town. Sure. But they spend 17 by the end of the month. And then the last three they give to their parents. And like they're making a lot of money, but they're monthly earners. Mm. And I hold a $2,000 salary guy who squirrels away a thousand into savings and a thousand into surviving. I hold him in higher regard. Then, you know, I hope she doesn't know who she is, but sure. yeah. That's, that's one thing that people don't talk about enough because it's always about making money, but it just starts with habits and discipline and resilience in that sense because like it does take interpersonal strengths, uh, intrapersonal strengths to be able to identify and trim, we call it the four T's, like trim, um, I can't remember, uh, but trimming is definitely the first thing, identifying areas where you can cut down your needs and your wants and realize that if you put aside that money, uh, it does compound eventually if you put it somewhere else. Um, this thing about this this point that you brought up is also very interesting because I think most people don't realize that it's really not about how much money you make by your lifestyle. There can be people making tons of money but their lifestyle is extravagant and they can't get out of it. Yeah, they, they can't get out of it. It's just, that is just their lifestyle. So imagine if they lose a job, they're in big crap. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it actually starts with that, that self-discipline. Uh, um, and then it's tied to spirituality as well, but if we go into that, well... That will take too long. Yeah, take too long. Okay, so they have to keep that in mind, but let's say they do, maybe already do some savings, right? And they have set aside an amount to invest every month. Uh, what, what do you recommend them to think about? Okay. Let's say you've got your money management under pat. It's all good. You, you know how to manage your money. You are not impulsive on how you spend these potential gains you're going to make. The first thing you should look at is how old you are. So you may have listeners who are very young. You may have listeners who are in the later stages of their life. So you need to look at how old you are because time is your most um, valuable resource when investing. And we're talking about investing first, mm. not, not trading. So if you look at the benchmark, which is the S&P 500, which is an American index of America's top 500 companies, they've generated an average about 12% per year for the past few decades. So that should be a benchmark. And if you, for example, don't know where else to park your money, put your money in there. Mm. And every year, or if you really want to do so every month, you can add a little bit more in. And this is called dollar cost averaging. So you don't throw your whole nest egg onto the S&P 500 at once. You sort of dollar cost average your way in, which means, you know, you put a thousand in now, next month, whatever the price is, you put in another thousand. What the price next month? Put in another thousand. Yeah. And then when things go bad, for example, COVID it was a great time. Uh, when everyone was panicking, if you had some spare cash, COVID was a great time yeah. to put a big injection into the markets. And then hands off, you know, if you've got 20, 30 years to wait before your, you know, first kid or your first house, then just wait it out. Mm, okay. So that's the most basic thing, right? Putting ETFs, just letting it compound. I mean, there are investment philosophies where you say that it's very hard to beat the market by picking stocks if you're not doing it professionally. So it just, it just makes sense to just put it in, Something that grows ten percent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that that makes a lot of sense, especially if a passive investor. I think that's my why. But why do people not do that? Because I, I feel that a lot do, even for me, when I first started, right, I had this perception that I could beat the market. We always have this, I think it's Dunn Kruger effect. What's it called? Oh yes. Like, so it's yeah. I, I will yes, we'll edit we'll, it. We'll, bring it up, yeah. <laughs> we'll edit it here. But basically it's that you says that people overestimate their ability when they have a little bit of knowledge. Yes. Uh and they think that they can beat the market. Why do you have, have you ever been in that position where you felt like okay I could invest in GME is one good example? Mm-hmm. Um, how uh, do you guard against that? I'd say it's only happened to me once. Mm-hmm. And I'll be very transparent. Uh, I went short last year on all American indices around August, 
mm. August. Made some money in September. There was a bit of a dip due to overvaluation of the Nasdaq, but that beige recovered and now is an all-time high when the economy is an all-time low. So there's this huge disconnect. Mm. It shouldn't be happening, but I learned how to admit when I'm wrong uh, and accept the system that I'm in that I do not agree with. Mm. So, but yeah. some context, shorting means betting that the price will go low, right? Yes, shorting to give context means, yeah, I, I'm betting that the stock market is going to go down and reflect the actual true economy. Sure. Yeah, so no one's immune to mistakes in that sense. And especially if you're starting out, right? Like, don't make a mistake of trying to, thinking that you can... I mean, let's talk about Jimmy because that's the best example. I guess the most recent example people can think about. Uh, let's try and summarize it to the best we can. Uh, try and summarize it in one minute, that situation, why it happened, and why do people put their money inside? Okay, GameStop, to give context, went from about $4, which is my fair valuation, to at one point about $500 US dollars in a span of, you know, two weeks. And then now it's come back down to about 50, 60, yeah. thereabouts. Um, it was mainly just what we call FOMO, which is the fear of missing out. You see your friends making money on GameStop and they tell you, hey, you can't lose money on this. Mm. And you listen to them instead of doing your own research. And if you did your own research, you'd realize it is it's a dead, it's a dead company. Mm. And this whole Wall Street bets group, uh, some of them made money. But if you actually understand how money is moved around when you buy and sell shares or puts and options, uh, effectively all they did was reshuffle their own money amongst themselves. Mm. That's quite sad, right? Because that, that is kind of painted as a war against David and Goliath and yes, that it's it against is. Melbourne, but it's hard to beat the hedge funds. Mm. It's insane. And not trying to yeah. tell them that what they did was wrong, but I'm just trying to remind anyone who's on Wall Street Bets yeah that a lot of the people who are there do not give a crap about beating the hedge funds. They just want to make money. Mm. Uh, so I feel really bad for the true crusaders who are out there trying to, you know, stick a finger up to the hedge funds because they are the minority and they may not realize it. That's crazy. Yeah. There's so many narratives surrounding this story, but that's one narrative where you don't know who are the people that are just there to hype up the market so they can exit at a higher price. Yep. And all the victims just say, okay, I'm holding this fault and they're righteous in inverted commas. And, yeah, and righteousness, yeah, and righteousness actually you lose money when you are inverted commas righteous. There's another principle which we won't get into, but but you have to realize that people are self-interested first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Once you understand that premise, right, then you can think a bit clearer. Because if not, you are. I mean, there are people that lose a lot of money like, during this time when they just FOMO and think it's going to go up. But like you said. So what can we learn from this then? Like, what is the lesson that people can learn if they really lost money? Or in, in this case, if let's say even looking at this example, what can people learn looking at this example? I would say the best advice I could ever give to anyone is learn from others' mistakes instead of your own, especially in this field. So when I say others' mistakes, I don't mean your friends. I mean, we, we should always look back at history. So if you pull up charts, you'll be able to see price action from decades ago. Mm. And the last time this happened, I hate to be the naysayer, I hate to be the, the one that says the world's ending soon, but mm. the last time we saw price action like this was the 2001.com bubble. Mm. And the word I would use is euphoria, you know, where, where indices, stocks just started skyrocketing almost you know, parabolic levels. The mm. charts look like they right angled, yep. you know, for a few months. And then we had just utter chaos and capitulation followed uh, a year later. So I would tell anyone who's getting involved in the market right now, especially in highly speculative stocks like AMC, you know, I'm not going to name names and pull those companies down, but I'm just saying that don't get involved in anything too speculative if you do not understand the risk. If you are putting down more than 3% of your capital onto some meme stock, 
then you need to reevaluate whether you will be able to stomach the loss of you know whatever it is you're putting down. Yeah, I mean they say don't invest what you cannot lose, right? Can't afford to lose. Yes. Um, let's talk about trading. So I think let's talk about the last part, uh, which is on trading, which is a different thing. Uh, but what's the difference between uh, trading and investing? Well, usually it's a time frame. So investing means mm-hmm. parking your money somewhere for a long period of time and allowing mm-hmm. you know interest. Usually they pay dividends, allowing the yields to compound. Uh, trading, on the other hand, is very short term. Uh, as short as you know, we have scalping, which is you know one minute time frames, um, all the way up to you know swing trading, where you might hold the trade for two weeks. But two weeks is already considered very short mm. in investing terms. Okay, and how did you personally start trading? What was that draw for you? The draw for me was the ability to end every day and see how much profit or loss I had made. So when you invest, uh, you're only able to see at the end of the year, hey, over this year, I made you know X percent. Mm. But if you can rinse and repeat every day, it's not about making more. It's more about trying to move forward every day. Like yesterday, I made 70. Tomorrow, can I make 71, perhaps? It's not a perfect way of looking at it, but that's that was my way for a long time. And so one thing I'd like to go into is why a lot of people start trading before they even start investing. So people started throwing all money into trading yeah. because it's quick, because it's it has the allure, the glamour of, you know, almost gambling, mm. almost, mm. almost gambling. But the difference between trading and investing, if you're starting out, investing is a lot easier because you buy something and you hold it, diamond hands, <laughs> right? And so with trading, it's different because you can apply what we call leverage, which is a multiplier of your profits or losses. It's, it's, it's a loan from the broker to you. I don't want to go into detail. You can look it up. But basically, it's a multiply on profits and losses. And you, some people are using a leverage of 100, 200, 500, 1,000 times. But I mean, with trading, you have to be willing to take losses. And you have to cut these losses immediately because of the leverage. You cannot allow something, or you cannot diamond hands and hold on to something that's losing because it can absolutely destroy you. And this is where a lot of people... Uh, this is what I love because this is where psychology and finance come together. So that's the difference. Talk to me about that. I guess we have about 15 minutes to explore that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, trading has got a lot of a lot of talk about it. The reason because, yes, on one hand, you know, there are traders that make millions, millions of dollars because if you're good at it, you can make that amount of money. I guess that's the draw. But it's also, like you said, Shrouded in a lot of things like, I don't know, man, substance abuse to make <laughs> so people can control their emotions, uh, people taking their own life because, you know, they lost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is something you shouldn't go into unless you have really good resilience emotionally. Uh, how do you train that? Because I want to know from you because you are into it and you do it. I feel that I would never understand that, <laughs> but talk to me about that. I suppose it's like the point that we were talking about earlier about how things are neutral. It's people that make them positive or negative. Okay. And we need to start by, by making this assumption that you know trading is neutral. And it is and becomes what you make of it. So what you bring to the table is you know, how, how I've seen it often become toxic and negative is people come to trading when they're already in debt. Mm. This is my way out. I need this to work. Uh, people come to trading 
without training. So you can train online with, you know, demo accounts. You can mm. train with fake money and live charts. Yeah. And that's that's free education. That's the best tool there is out there. And people who come to me to learn, I force them to stay on that for like three months. Mm. Uh, so you can make mistakes with fake money. and But a lot of people don't want to do that. They want to rush in because they think that, yes, what we were talking about earlier, I am better than everyone else. I have a small amount of knowledge, but I think I'm going to make it. And okay. uh, yeah, that's usually why people crash and burn. And what what makes in that, in that on that vein, right? What makes a good a good trader? What makes a good trader? Because people have this conception also that maybe need me good in math, uh, and you you failed math, you screwed math up I screwed completely. Math. I screwed math big time. <laughs> math is my worst subject, other than French. Right. Um, but no, you do not need a lot of math. You might need some arithmetic, which is just addition, subtraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might need good money management, which is what we talked about earlier, but you do not need any professional qualification from school. You don't need to be an A-level student. Technically, in theory, you could teach a P5 or P4 kid to do it, mm. right? And it might even be better for them because they think it's just a game, mm. Wow! right? It's just points. It's, it's not actual yeah, dollars. Yeah, yeah. So mm. the trouble comes in when people uh, lose control of, of their they don't have a trading plan. They don't have a fixed plan. They start to insert emotions into the game, right? And and this is exactly what I was prepared for when I semi-professionally played blackjack because mm. I had a plan. I stuck with it. If I make or lose this much, I'm walking out. I journal every day how much mm. I've made, how much I've lost. I make sure at the end of the year, I have a net annual return of X, Y, Z. Okay. We carry that on to the next year. Oh, yeah, and that that's emotional control, right? And that mm. is essentially self-discipline and control, which is trained over time. And I guess the principle applies that anything that you want to do well requires work. You know, it's not something you get in and just make it big like this, which I guess people have this infatuation about trading. Okay, well, I feel like I've squeezed you quite dry today. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, we could really go in depth into it. I guess maybe one of the last two questions is... Uh, what about yourself then? Like, what are you making this money for? What are you, you're trading and making decent amount of money? Like I say, I, I mean, I wish I could say to give credibility, but I, would, I wouldn't. <laughs> but just take my word for it, right? He's his backyard, uh, with some random ecosystems. It has nothing to do with the money, but I don't know why I went there. I'm just, <laughs> yeah, because mm-hmm. he has a backyard with snakes there and then we, we have an ecosystem. I'm just very excited about, about that. But basically, you're financially independent. You're financially, you can give, you know, you don't, you're leaving, oh, you're leaving the force mm-hmm. real soon, right? And now you're going to hit full time. What is all this for? So I think everyone needs an overarching goal. Mm-hmm. And of course this can change. Not not everyone needs to have one, but mm-hmm. it can help. Uh, for me personally, my goal is to set up an orphanage one day uh, so that kids who were like me, but less fortunate, like they knew their parents and they lost them, and now they feel like they have no sense of belonging. Uh, I want to give them a place where they can belong, whether or not someone comes along to adopt them. So build up a, you know, a support system. I don't know much about the legalities of it, but uh, I, that is my life's goal. I want to set up a place in Singapore where you know, this small orphan population, which is often overlooked and you know, people don't even talk about it because you hardly meet them, but this small group can uh, come to for education, mm. a proper support system, uh, some some sort of system that will set them up for life. Sure. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. I mean, as you were speaking, I, I kind of remember that you own a bar as well. 
So now, yes. <laughs> so now you own a bar and then you're gonna get an orphanage, own an orphanage eventually. I would love to, you know. I guess maybe when that happens, I do believe one day you will. I'll kind of pay a visit. I love to. One day, have you have you thought about where you want to have it? I think Singapore. Yeah. Overseas. Okay. Where? When? Oh yeah. I have to bring a a fair few people on board, including a probably government. They they would give suggestions. At my age right now, I have no experience setting up mm. an orphanage. You know, that's a that's a different game. So, sure. building up the money first, and I'm sure it can be done. A few years, and uh, we'll see where it takes us. Last question: Do you have anything to say to uh, you know the listeners? Any message that you believe strongly in? Can be about money. Can be about spirituality. Can be anything. Is there any message that you want to share? Well, I'll share with you what I wish I shared with myself when I was 18. And that is, you are probably obsessed with buying branded stuff and looking good. Uh, your wallet is probably LV. Your bag might be MS. You know, your shoes might be Louboutin, but are you happy? And I was not. And uh, it hurts me every day to see, you know, there's nothing wrong with fashion. If you if you like it, you like it. But I see ninety nine percent of people in these sort of clothes, uh, making up for something, and that was me. And that might be you. And if it is you, uh, it's not too late to change. Um, and you can by stripping those things away. And you might think that hey, if I just stop wearing these things, it's not going to change the way I think. But it does. You know, if you change the way you look at things, sometimes the things you look at change. So I won't tell you what's in my bank, but I've enough to live comfortably, but I've made it a habit and I force myself to, this top's Uniqlo, these pants are Uniqlo, these socks are, these socks are embarrassing. They're from army, which means they're free. So uh, if you start doing that, you start distancing yourself from these things. The desire suddenly goes away to buy more. Mm. And, and that's for anything. And uh, last piece of financial advice is uh, don't buy a first-hand car. You don't need it. <laughs> That's a bit disjointed. But yeah, I guess yeah. it still links. I appreciate the message deeply. I appreciate your time that you spent with me. I'm so glad that we managed to reconnect. Mm-hmm. You know, I believe I'll be visiting you uh, once in a while, even occasionally, to finally find Sylvester, find which Sylvester. is the name of his the snake. snake. I fulfilled my lifelong dream of uh, handling a snake in a while, technically in a while. <laughs> will be it will be thanks Leo I appreciate it I guess that comes us comes to the end of uh, the podcast you want to connect with Leo you can find him on Instagram I'll just link I'll link you up as usual um, if you want to really know more about finances whatever you can talk to him he's a firm believer in free financial education yes do it with the right mindset with that we've come to the end uh, subscribe you know uh, share this podcast if it adds value to you and uh, we'll see you next time right? stay resilient and goodbye that camera that camera <laughs> yeah.